Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for February 1st, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. One month into the 116th Congress, we get an inside look at the power plays between party leaders and the president. The government shutdown did it set the tone for this new Congress. Will congressional Republicans stay with the president in the year ahead? House Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi count the votes, use the rules, and exert their power. Questions we answer with Chad Pergram, senior Capitol Hill producer for Fox News. He explains how Congress really works with his stories, insights, and historical perspective. We begin, though, with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, regaining the gavel as House Speaker this past January. Thank you very much, Leader McCarthy. I look forward to working with you in a bipartisan way for the good of our country, respecting our constituents. Who, you are every one of you. I respect you and the constituents who sent each and every one of us here. They expect and deserve for us to try to find our common ground. And we must try to do that. Stand our ground where we can't but always extend the hand of friendship. Thank you, Kevin McCarthy, for your leadership. I look forward to working with you. Congratulations on being the leader of the party. Nancy Pelosi becoming speaker once again at the start of the 116th Congress. Chad Pergram, what is her biggest challenge as she returns with the speaker's gavel one more time? Well, some people talk about how it's a challenge to keep all of her people together. Certainly, that was the concern going in when they won control of the House, and there was a question as to whether or not she was going to be able to win the Speaker's election. Well, after a couple of weeks, she had put those naysayers to rest and got everybody together pretty quickly. Uh, She's a very good vote counter, as you know. Now, she comes in with a similar atmosphere that she came in to the speakership in 2006. As you might recall, there was a lot of pressure then. You know, there was a lot of dissatisfaction about the uh, uh, war in Iraq and and uh, Abu Ghraib and all those types of, of issues from, you know, 15 years or, or so ago. And there were liberals pushing her to say, let's impeach the president. Uh, she has to temper those. Well, she's been there before. She's done this before. And she said in that instance in 06, 07, when she first got the gavel, Steve, that impeachment was off the table. Now, she has not said that in those circumstances here, but she has so far been able to kind of manage things. And in, in a weird way, Steve, 
almost a paradoxical way, the shutdown probably helped her. It might have been the best thing that ever happened to her because, number one, it enabled her to sort of channel the energies of all of these upstart new Democrats who are ready to come to town and, and change things, but channel that energy to be against President Trump but maybe not go you know the direction of impeachment yet talk about spending talk about border walls and 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 develop this this you know have everybody sort of coalesce around her position it really strengthened her hand in many respects so does that start to in a wind away when you don't have a government shutdown and we get down the road and maybe things come out from the Robert Mueller report or, or whatever else um, but so far, she passed that initial test pretty well. I wonder, what are the lessons that she can take away from her predecessors, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, dealing with the conservative wing of the Republican Party during their tenure as House Speaker, and now Nancy Pelosi with the more progressive wing? Well, the Republicans, when they had uh, the majority and both John Boehner and, and Paul Ryan dealt with this, it was the, the, the pressure from the, the Freedom Caucus, which is the most conservative group of, of members in the, in, in the Republican Party. Uh, Jim Jordan uh, from Ohio, Mark Meadows of North Carolina are kind of the the leaders there. Uh, it was said, uh, and I heard more than one source say this to me on Capitol Hill, that her Freedom Caucus is going to be more nettlesome than their Freedom Caucus. Meaning, you you have these more extreme uh, voices on the left. You, you, you know, you know some of the the intemperate comments made by Rashida Tlaib, the 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 freshman Democratic Congresswoman from Michigan. You know, first day, you, you know, using a uh, an expletive on what she wanted to do with the President of the United States as it referred to impeachment. And I asked Nancy Pelosi that day, Steve. I said she was about to go down to the White House for one of these meetings about government the government shutdown. And she said, uh, I, I said, I said, are, are you going to talk to Congresswoman Tlaib about her language? And she said, no, I'm going to go talk to the president about his language. So there's always that pivot there. But at the end of the day, you know, sometimes she might have to address these these problems. As senior producer for Fox News on Capitol Hill, you know all of the players, both elected officials and the key decision makers behind the scenes. How do you go about your job and how do you cultivate these contacts? I think one of the most important things, and I was not good in chemistry uh, or, or, or physics in high school. I mean, we had those classes and I did pretty poorly at them. But something that occurred to me is that it's like learning the periodic table. If you are a chemist or a physicist, you have to commit to memory all the atomic numbers of all the, the elements on the periodic table. So if I'm somebody who's covering Capitol Hill and I don't know who the ranking subcommittee you know, member on the such and such is or whatever else, or I don't know, you know, that guy, he had that tough primary two years ago, or he's in a swing district, he barely won with 51%, you know, and so they put him on three committees versus two, all these little factors. You have to commit to memory, commit to memory, mind you, the periodic table of Congress. It's the same thing. And so when you have this gigantic freshman class come in, 90 some on people, and you're coming in in a, in a crazy news cycle, which is what we were in, I usually spend November, December, 1st of January with a book, and all I do is I study the book. Now, some of the members I have met, some of them you know, are, are, are better-known names, like everybody knows who Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is. Nobody knows who Carol Miller from West Virginia is. Nobody knows who Michael San Nicolas from Guam is, the non-voting delegate from Guam, presuming that you knew that there was a non-voting delegate from Guam and a new one, no less. So that's so I sit on when I have time, and usually we have a little bit of downtime at Christmas every two years, and not, we're traveling somewhere on vacation, and I sit on the airplane and in the hotel room or the bar, and I study the book, and I'm trying to learn these folks. And it's been a challenge this time around because, A, the class is so big, B, I wasn't able to get away for vacation, 
Three, uh, we came in the middle of a government shutdown, so there, was, so there was such big news, and so I'm still trying to learn all these folks. But but it's it, you have to have that baseline because otherwise you just don't know who the players are. And you need, need, need to be able to spot people in a hallway and say, okay, he's talking to her, and they have that issue, and she chairs that subcommittee. I bet that's what that's. So it's almost like that sixth sense. Now, you asked about how do you sort of, you know, get to know people and things. Well, you know, the first thing I try to do is get up and just introduce them, introduce myself to them so they don't, you know, just say hi. You know, I think that's very important. Um, One thing I do is I always tell them we're always off the record unless we agree otherwise, because most of the information that I'm trying to get is off the record. I want context. I want context. And if I'm, there will be a point where I need something on the record, maybe not from everybody. But I need that background because then I can start. It's like you have that puzzle, you know, that you're putting together and it has the capital or the, the, the castle in Germany or something but on the cover of the box. You don't know what the box looks like. So I go around, talk to nine, ten people, and then voila. The other thing is I talk about sports with a lot of people. I'm a big sports fan. So I engage them about that. We have dogs. I talk about their dogs. We All those types of things because that way they get to know you as a person. And then when there's a tough question that comes up, and not that I'm, I'm doing this to lure them in somehow, but the idea that, I, you know, they get to know me and say, all right, you know, he, he's just not another reporter standing around in the speaker's lobby or out in the hall. I know Chad. And there have been times when there has been pressure with somebody. And I've said, look, I got to ask you something pretty tough here. You know, you've, I've always been fair to you. I need to ask you X. And usually they get a, I get a pretty good response from that because they know, you know, they have built a rapport and trust and they would rather have I like to think or hope someone like me deal with that story that is sensitive versus someone who they've never dealt with before. We should point out that we have known each other for years. You began your career early here at C-SPAN. My first job in Washington. I'd worked in radio and TV in Cincinnati and Ohio before I came out here, but this was my first job in in Washington at C-SPAN. And what strikes me as we have this conversation today is that you have that same enthusiasm that you had 15, 20 years ago. Well, two things, and this speaks to your, your first question slightly. Part of the building that foundation, frankly, Steve, goes back to when I worked at C-SPAN because I'd be in the control room or once in a while up on the Hill and the House and Senate were in session. And so you're learning who the players are, at least the faces and everything. You're learning the procedure, you know, which, again, I mean, th- those were some of the most formative foundations, frankly, when I worked here at C-SPAN. The second part of it is um, I came to C-SPAN in 93, fall of 93. And in about the spring of 94, there was a profile of Brian Lamb, founder of C-SPAN, in The New Yorker. And the drawing in The New Yorker was of Lamb taking the dome off the Capitol and peering in. And, you know, one of the major tenets at C-SPAN here is to kind of open up government and show how things work without editorial comment and all those things. And so I've always kind of used, frankly, that image from The New Yorker as a little bit of my mantra, take the dome off the Capitol, let people peer inside and see how the gearboxes work. Because I think that people are interested in government, but they don't completely understand how it works. Now, it's easy to go out and do a report. Pelosi said that. Kevin McCarthy said that. Chad Pergram, Washington. It's easy to do that. And, and, and there's a time and a place for that. But once you start to take that dome off the building and explain why they need 60 votes in the Senate or why you have to first have a motion to proceed in the Senate, or why does a major nominee have to lay over for an additional week, you know, if, if Democrats invoke that on, on Barr's nomination to be attorney general or Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. 
people back home, they might not say, well, I don't like McConnell or I don't like Pelosi, but I understand why they had to do that now because I think that people are naturally interested in understanding those mechanics, and they can get it. People sit and watching and talk about football and three, four defenses and nickel packages and at, at a granular level with football. They can do the same with politics if they put the time into it. We see you on the Fox News channel, your work at foxnews.com. We listen to you on Fox Radio. How do you disseminate your information to the viewers and listeners of Fox and also the reporters who cover Capitol Hill beyond your producing? Well, the main thing I, I always try to do, I mean, my main core of my job is the eyes and ears of Fox up on Capitol Hill. And we have several other people who work with us. Uh, but, you know, I try to, A, try to make sure we're covering the right things, liaising with the assignment desk, make sure we have cameras at things, or maybe we need to go do a separate interview or say, you know, that this is a really big story. We should do something on this. Or, yes, that's interesting, but it's not as interesting as you think. And here's why. So we do. In fact, I did that this morning with a story, for instance. I'm like, yeah, we should pay attention, but that's, this is kind of run-of-the-mill kind of thing. Okay, that's fine. And But it's it's reaching across all the platforms. I might hear from somebody at Fox Business. I might hear from somebody at Fox News Radio. Dot com with a question about something. I had someone uh, at Fox Business ask me a question the other day about contingent elections, which we've only had two. In the in which is what happens if they is if there's a dispute and they cannot resolve things in the electoral college with the you know counting the electoral ballots for president of the United States. So the Constitution provides for a contingent election. We've done it in 1800, 1824. And the question focused on, well, how many can they, A, can they consider anybody? And B, which Congress considers it? And I pointed out, I said, well, they, they consider the top three is what it is, which is funny because in the first contingent election, John Adams, who was the sitting president, mind you, only got 65 electoral votes. He came in third. He was considered in the, but, you know, we hold John Adams way up here, but my goodness, you know, he came, the man came in third and then he wasn't reelected. So it was that type of question that, that comes up. But I, but, but why, why I knew the answer was number one, I had written a blog about this in the spring of 16, because we were wondering, could there be an issue in 2016 where, the election would be pitched into the House of Representatives because there was a dispute or they couldn't sat, get to 270 in the Electoral College. And so I have in my arsenal, I said, you know, I wrote about this a few years ago and I found it very quickly and sent it along up to somebody in New York. So instead of Google, Fox News has Chad Program. <laughs> I guess sometimes, but I, I, it, it's out there somewhere. Yes. Which is a good opportunity to promote your blog, The Speaker's Lobby, the most recent one look, looking at uh, this conference committee. My question to you, with the news of the day, what will happen? Will the appropriators work out an agreement that both parties, both sides of Capitol Hill, and the president can agree to? It is said, Steve, that there are three types of members of Congress. There are Democrats, there are Republicans, and there are appropriators. Appropriators are a special breed, and they have good bipartisan relations with one another, and sometimes just not across the aisle, but across the building. And in a conference committee, you're taking you know, Democrats and Republicans and getting their ideas together in a congressional blender and trying to see what they can come up with. There has been a lot of conversation about the scope of this conference committee. Should it be narrow and just deal with border security, but maybe it ripens the deal a little bit if they deal with immigration, deal with DACA? Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator from South Carolina, was talking about debt ceiling, or does that complicate things? Now, the biggest issue they have is turning radius, time. Um, not a lot of people realize that the deadline to fund the government is really not the 15th of, of February. 
it's really February 8th and maybe at the latest the 10th. And that's because the House Democrats, when they won the majority this time, they imposed a solid uh, 72-hour rule, three days. In other words, you have to post the bill for a solid three days, a three-day clock runs, and then you can consider it. Republicans used to tout the fact that they had, and it was called sometimes the 72-hour rule or three-hour rule or three-day rule. It was really the two-hour, I'm sorry, the one-day and two-second rule that you could post it on Tuesday at 11.59.59 p.m. and consider it Thursday at 12.00.01 on Thursday. So that means that they have to have that text out there by you know February the 8th, maybe the latest if they push it to February the 10th, which is a Sunday. Adhere to the three days, and then really they're right up against it to get it through the Senate. So that might be the biggest obstacle time. But at the end of the day, and I've spoken with you know even you know Republican appropriation sources who say that you know the term wall does not have to be in the bill, and it, and it could be called wall. And it could not be called wall. You know, it's all up to the eye of the beholder, and that might be the exit ramp. So if they're able to come up with something that works there, then yes, that's that's possible. But the biggest question is, then does the president sign it? This is one exchange you had with the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, and again on the issue of funding, appropriators, and this conference. McConnell, you're a longtime appropriator. What is the right scope? for this conference committee. We've had other people talk about immigration, DACA, debt ceiling. Would you be okay if they can forge an agreement and it wanders off into those other areas, or you want to keep it just strictly to border security? Uh, but whatever works, which means avoiding a shutdown and avoiding uh, the president feeling he should declare a national emergency. Exactly how to do that, as you all know, has been quite challenging. So that sounds like broader. <laughs> I'm for narrow or broader. I'm for whatever works that prevents the level of dysfunction we've seen on full display here the last month and also doesn't uh, bring about a view on the president's part that he needs declared a national emergency. Leader McConnell certainly knows how to parse his words. He does. And he is an old appropriator, as I pointed out in the question there. So he is open for whatever does work. Number one, what he's trying to achieve here, number first of all, is he doesn't want the government shut down. Two, he really wants to stay away from this idea of the president declaring a national emergency because he thinks that's bad precedent. There has been this wrestling match for years, going back decades, really, of the legislative branch ceding power to the executive. And McConnell wants to protect those Article One in the Constitution rights, Constitution rights of the legislative branch. And so, if the president were to declare a national emergency, well, what happens? They start to declare national emergencies on everything, and then just run ramshod over the Congress. I think that's one of the concerns there. As, as one uh, Republican source had said to me, what happens if um, President Harris? in 2022 declares a national emergency on climate change or something. That's a that's a problem. So they don't want to establish that precedent. So that's why he he's being very open ended. And that's a signal for Mitch McConnell that he is trying to stay out of those talks and also a little bit of a signal to the White House of why don't you stay out of those talks too? let the appropriators work. Did Mitch McConnell, though, set a new precedent with regard to Merrick Garland? Could we see that come back to hurt Republicans down the road? Well, some wonder about that. I mean, I mean, he certainly established a new precedent twice. You know, the Senate operates on standing rules, which is about the book's about that thick. And I'm holding my fingers together here. They're just a couple Not of millimeters. And then there's the book of precedent, which is as wide as the audio board here. 
the, so what happened, and so let me kind of answer your question in a backwards way, he established new precedent in both the instances of how what what was the, the, the how the Senate dealt with filibusters on Supreme Court nominees. So Harry Reid, the former majority leader, opened the door onto all types of nominees except Supreme Court, lowering the bar to 51. Then uh, they certainly did this um, with Neil Gorsuch, lowered the bar to that. And that's the only reason that then Brett Kavanaugh got on the Supreme Court, because he would have faced a filibuster, which never technically had happened. Uh, to, to get someone onto the court, you'd had that with Abe Fortas uh, to, to become a, a chief justice, going from associate justice, but to actually put someone to the court. So I give you that to talk about precedent with Merrick Garland. Now, that's not going to show up in the book of precedent, which the Senate uses. But people have long memories in the Senate. And this tit-for-tat over judicial nominees goes back to the 80s, really back to the Robert Bork nomination. In fact, that became a verb in Washington to, to Bork someone, to actually you know, you know, bury them in the hearing so badly with their record. And Robert Bork you know, never made it onto the Supreme Court. So what you're really seeing, the echoes now with Brett Kavanaugh, goes back to echoes of how Merrick Garland was treated, which really goes back to how Clarence Thomas was treated and then goes all the way back to Robert Bork. What makes Mitch McConnell tick? Some compare him to Robert C. Byrd, who, for those who remember, knew everything about Senate rules and draw that comparison to the current Republican leader in the U.S. Senate. Byrd said to me one time in an interview, and he was not shy about touting this. He said, quote, I knew the rules about as well as anybody who ever came in here, and I knew how to use them, too. Quote, close quote. That's Robert Byrd. Now, I don't know that Mitch McConnell or anybody else, with the exception maybe Lyndon Johnson, um, knew the rules quite as good as Robert Byrd. There's a reason why there's rooms about Byrd, and there's even something called the Byrd rule in the Senate. McConnell is pretty close, but McConnell, at the end of the day, I, I, it comes back to that appropriator you know, sense, that he, you know, he really wants to see the machinery run well. Uh, but he's also willing to go to the mat and establish new precedent uh, to kind of take what others have done and go back and revisit it. You know, in the case of Merrick Garland, he kept invoking something that called, was called the Biden rule. Now, again, you're not going to find the Biden rule written down anywhere. Nobody knew what it was. It was something that Joe Biden, when he was in the Senate in the late 80s, early 90s, had talked about that they shouldn't consider a nominee. And this is, again, this is the beauty of Google. People can go back and look things up. And, and you know, most people haven't covered the Senate since the late 80s or early 90s. And and it became part of this vernacular. You know, so he, he, he he's very good about turning around what the other side has done and firing it back at them. And that's one of his best skills, it seems. Let's go back to Leader McConnell and, again, the, the possibility of a government shutdown. I want to ask you the politics behind all of that, but this is what he said uh, this past week. Mr. Leader, do you support legislation to end shutdowns once and for all? Well, to uh, modify one of my quotes, it usually brings a smile to your face. There certainly would be no education in the third kick of a mule. Um, I don't like shutdowns. I don't think they work for anybody, and I hope they'll be avoided. Is that a message to the White House and in particular to the president? Mitch McConnell felt burned in December. He put a bill on the floor to fund the government through early February and thought he had the blessing of the White House. And in fact, I remember talking to Richard Shelby 
from Alabama, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, who said, you know, I don't think that, uh, you know, that we would put this bill on the floor if the president hadn't indicated he would sign it. McConnell did this in a very interesting way, and he's done a couple of things like this before, where he waits till kind of late at night, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. Everybody kind of knows what's up. He calls a, a live quorum call, which means it's a live quorum call, so everybody gets to the chamber. And because in the Senate, they, they approve things via unanimous consent. They have to have the, the blessing of all 100 senators. And, and, some, and most of that goes on offstage. They have what they call hotlines that they run, and they check in with all 100. And if, if they're fine with it, then they go ahead and move it on the floor. You don't see real live objections on the floor very often unless something's not or, or, or passage unless something's been pre-baked. So what McConnell was doing that night in December, about a week before Christmas, he wanted everybody in the chamber so that no, you know, everybody was there and everybody could actually, you know, say yes or no. But he did it during voice uh, via a voice vote. It wasn't unanimous consent because he wouldn't have had unanimous consent. He did it via voice vote because what happens in a voice vote? All in favor shout aye. Those opposed shout nay. And then the language is in the opinion of the chair, <laughs> the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. Jerry Moran, Republican senator of Kansas, you can hear him. And I talked to Senator Moran about this. He said, nay. He said, I just don't vote for CRs. <laughs> but, in the, but he wasn't. But that way you, you also don't commit everybody to a roll call vote. So he's gone through and put this through to try to put out the fire with the government shutdown. And then the next thing you know, the president calls the Speaker of the House, the then Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan from, from Wisconsin, and says, I'm not going to sign the bill. So McConnell felt burned from that. And that's one of the reasons McConnell sat on the sidelines for several weeks during the government shutdown. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic caucus chair from New York, said, you know, I'm glad he finally emerged from the witness protection program was the line that (laughs) Jeffries used. But we heard Leader McConnell two, three, four days later on the Senate floor, basically schoolhouse rock. This is how a bill becomes a law. Yeah, and and it's it's funny. You you will hear member uh, members of Congress, both sides. Sometimes they will do things. You know, the I think a lot of people would argue that the Merrick Garland situation might not have been schoolhouse rock, but then they will tout schoolhouse rock and and the rules if it's time if it works to their advantage. Then you know I've had people, you know, Paul Ryan. You say, oh, we're going to have a conference committee, and then I had other people say, well, we're going to have this conference committee. It's not going to work out, but. You know, it, it they, they will use the schoolhouse rock or the by the book way sometimes when it works to their advantage and then argue against it when it doesn't work to their advantage. In one of those private off the record moments, when you talk to House or Senate Republicans based on everything that's happened, including a 35 day shutdown. What is your sense of this president? You're starting to see this play out. And this isn't so much from the private conversations. Um this is from what you're starting to see, the schisms among Republicans, mostly in the foreign policy area. You've seen divides between the, the president and mostly Senate Republicans on Syria. You know, the, even McConnell has an amendment to protest basically against what he interprets as a speedy withdrawal from Syria and how that might uh, create foreign policy and national security problems for the United States. This is the Senate majority leader putting something like that up. Uh, we had votes on Russia sanctions, you know, where you had a number of Republicans go out. Even with the government shutdown, one of the reasons that the shutdown was solved uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week was not because of the ground stop at LaGuardia and problems with air traffic up and down the East Coast, although that probably didn't help. But as one source described to me, 
and I've reported this, that there was, they, were, they were about to have a, quote, jailbreak, meaning you had two procedural votes in the Senate, one from the Republican plan, the Republican plan, the Trump plan to reopen the government, build a wall, and then the Democratic plan. The Democratic plan got more votes. And there were six Republicans who crossed party, party lines. There was only one Democrat. And they were worried that they were actually going to start to get to 60, or if this continued to percolate out there for a couple more days. And that would then completely undercut the president, because then the president would be the only person standing. Now, he might have more support in the House of Representatives among Republicans, because they come from more centralized Republican Trump-centric districts. But those senators were starting to jump off the bandwagon, hence the jailbreak. Does the president understand the peculiarities of Congress? When you talk to members, they don't think he does, the nuances necessarily. And this is members on both sides. I mean, you had Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, you know, really comment, pretty harsh comment about, uh, you know, that he, you know, doesn't have the, the, the patience and concentration to focus on the intelligence reports. You know, the president said some pretty critical things the other day about the intelligence chiefs and what he knew about intelligence compared to them. And it's just not uh, coming from Democrats and partisan uh, things, but but you, you, you do start to hear some concern there. But again, when you talk to Republicans in the House, you know, the, the, the House districts are drawn in a way that they're more conservative or more liberal most of the time. And so you do find some people from some pretty Trump-centric states. And even though they might not initially have been on board with President Trump when he was going through the campaign, a lot of those uh, conservative Republicans are all in now. Let me turn back to the House Speaker. And this is a recent exchange you had with Speaker Pelosi. Good morning. Are you talking about the Warriors or politics? Anyway, it's always preferable. It's all about the numbers. More points, more votes, more whatever. So, Chad Pergram, your relationship with Speaker Pelosi and these on-the-record briefings that she does every Thursday. Well, well, that that was a case study right there. She walked in. She's wearing this 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 light blue suit. I know that she's a big sports fan. In fact, uh, you know, one of the reasons that Memorial Stadium in Baltimore was built and the St. Louis Browns moved from St. Louis to Baltimore and became the Baltimore Orioles was because of her dad and her and her family who were involved in Baltimore politics, mayor, Congress, everything else. And so she is a, as a little girl. She grew up in Baltimore going to Orioles games, going to Colts games, moved to San Francisco. A few years ago when the Giants were in the World Series, of course it's in October, she went to the 49ers game in the afternoon and the Giants World Series game at night. I mean, that's how big a sports fan she is. And that she, you know, the Golden State Warriors played the Washington Wizards in basketball here the other day. She went down to the game, even, uh, you, you know, was talking with Draymond Green and Steph Curry. I mean, this, I mean, she is a bona fide sports fan. So when she walked into that press conference, she was wearing the blue and she said, and she, she marveled at how many people were in the room because, A, more people always go to the speaker's press conference than the minority leader's press conference. OK, there's a reason for this. And so she comes in, and as I say, I often engage with folks about sports, and I engage with her about sports. Uh, I have been in her office, and she has a lot of San Francisco Giants, uh, you know, bats and paraphernalia. And I was one time waiting to interview her a few years ago, and I was looking at—I'm a big baseball fan. I'm looking at the bats. And then way down at the bottom of the stack of bats was a Dodgers bat. And I said to the speaker, she was in the minority, I said, do your constituents know in San Francisco that you have a Dodgers bat in here? You know, so those are the types of things. But 
That comment from Pelosi is very telling. She is just about the numbers. One of the reasons Pelosi is very good, and McConnell is a very good vote counter too, but I don't think we've seen probably since Lyndon Johnson uh, a vote counter as good as Nancy Pelosi. And that's what she's getting at in that comment. You know, whether you have more points on the field and in, in football or or, or or baseball or more runs in baseball, whatever, or more votes. Probably the most prescient story I've ever seen with Nancy Pelosi was um, two, and, two and a half years ago. So she was running for minority leader. Democrats did not get the House back in 16. A lot of people that, that, that those complaints about her and her effectiveness were starting to rise to a crescendo. Was it time for new blood? You know, she a lot of people thought that, you know, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, Pelosi might stick around for a bit and then kind of kind of seed power because, you know, a, a woman had risen to power in the, in the U.S. As, as president. And then that didn't happen. So there there was this attrition of support for her in the Democratic caucus. And what you do in the House is you have these caucus elections first to determine which party will run their candidate on the floor in January. And so Tim Ryan, Democrat from Ohio, Youngstown area, was running against her. And she was going into the cloakroom and it was very loud in the hallway. And I said something to the effect of, you know, what's the support of your caucus or something? And as she went into the cloakroom, I thought she said, I thought she said three-fourths. And I said three-fourths? And the door closed, and all of a sudden the door opens, and she sticks her hand out, and she goes, no, Chad, two-thirds, two-thirds. And then she went back in. They had the meeting a couple of days later, and they voted on her, and she beat Tim Ryan. She captured, Steve, precisely 67% of the vote. She knows how to count votes. And, and, and I think that one of the things that drives Republicans uh, in the House you know, a little bit up the wall, the idea that they were able to pass Obamacare was the fact that they were able to run all of these traps. And part of it was whether you like Obamacare or not, the merits and demerits of Obamacare, and there's there's issues there. But they were parliamentarily able to pass Obamacare and the fact that Republicans were unable to run those similar traps to undo it. Now, granted, the House did pass something, but they could never get it through the Senate. The math is paramount on Capitol Hill. It's always about the math. And if you can get the math right, you can do anything. If you can't get the math right, you can't. And so Pelosi, most of the time, she shows that she can get the math right. And she also knows how to twist arms. You want to be on that committee? And also looking at the donor base for that Democrat and say, you want funding for your reelection? You asked at the, at the front of the interview here about what's one of her biggest challenges. And I think that this is going to be, you know, speak to that, that, that Kevin McCarthy the minority leader, is really starting to ramp up this the, this pressure on her, uh, which is the same playbook that we saw from Republicans back when Pelosi was in uh, the speakership before. The idea that they make her the face of the party. On the first day, Mc- McCarthy was like, well, I can't believe that the speaker isn't calling out Rashida Tlaib, where to that point he was not yet calling out Steve King, Republican congressman from Iowa. Now, he did, and he did so pretty strongly, but that had not risen to that level yet. And so you're starting to see this same playbook that the Republicans executed in 07, 08, and, and certainly as they, they won the House in 2010, of make it all about Nancy Pelosi. Because she does, she does have problems in swing districts. She can't go and campaign there for moderate to conservative Democrats. She's not popular. 
And so Republicans are going back to this, you know, it's, and it's one of the the, the, the the concrete plays that they can play. You know, it was, it was often said that, uh, you know, the rock band ACDC made the same album 18 times. It's kind of the same thing with the Republicans. They, they know that they this is the same album about Nancy Pelosi. Just, you know, you know, kind of toxify her in the public in the public light. And that's that works for them. I want to take this one step further as we conclude to, to really better understand how Washington, D.C. works. And you moderated a conversation back in May of 2001. First, your relationship with Miami University. By accident, I started the Inside Washington program for uh, students uh, from Miami of Ohio, my alma mater, um, 20 years ago. And so we have done 20 years, about 35 semesters, depending on summer, spring, fall, whatever, um, since then. And so I earned both my undergrad and my master's from Miami and started this by accident where we bring students to Washington. They meet with Brian Lamb, the founder of C-SPAN. I think they've even met with you a couple of times. And they go and they, uh, you know, they get this pastiche of what is Washington. For instance, I had never done in the first two years of the program, Steve, a discussion about intelligence until 9-11. I'd never had to do a discussion about Ukraine until about two years ago. So it's kind of a little bit of current events and things. And so I, I think what you're talking about here in this, this clip we're going to play, this was a discussion which I thought was worthy about, you know, covering social Washington. Social Washington is a very much part of the coin of the realm in D.C. And so I thought that would be a worthy conversation. This is Chuck Conconi at the time with Washingtonian magazine. Let's listen. One person who really came to this city and knew how to use it was Tim Russert. I watched he and his wife, Maureen Orth, who is a writer for Vanity Fair magazine, and I used to joke, I said, my God, they'd show up at an opening of an envelope. They were everywhere. <laughs> and, but it, and Tim's success is deserved. There's no question about that. But there is this great story, which is true. Is it, uh, right after Clinton was elected president, first time, and there was a party at Pamela Harriman's house in Georgetown for the incoming administration, a lot of power brokers and people like that. Tim and his wife showed up there. This is an elegant party at this elegant house with a great buffet and everything you can imagine to drink. They moved out and moved around the room. Neither of them picked up a glass of anything to drink, and neither of them picked up a, the slightest or smallest hors d'oeuvre because they were working that room. Later at the end of the evening, they stopped at a place on Wisconsin Avenue, a joint called Hamburger Hamlet, where they had something to eat and went over their notes on what they had learned and what kind of contacts they had made that night. They knew that that was the most, I mean, you could, they could have been there in awe of, you know, of all the people who were there, but they weren't. They were working the room. Chad Pergram of the Fox News Channel. Is that how Washington works? The late Tim Russert? Washington is transactional, but I think that most things in life are transactional. Your, your church, your, your country club, whatever it is you, you, you deal with, it's who you have relationships with. And so that's why, you know, on, on Capitol Hill, I, I don't go to a lot of parties, frankly, to be honest with you. I, I don't I, I don't do that. I haven't been to the radio TV correspondence dinner actually in several years. I, 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 and I've never been to the White House correspondence dinner, frankly. Uh, I used to be even on the RTCA board, but I haven't been in several years. Um, I do think that it can, it can be transactional in that sense, but that's why when I don't have anything specific that I'm working on on Capitol Hill, I just go walk around the Capitol because inevitably I will observe something. I will see somebody 
or I will run into somebody who I haven't met before. And, I, you know, like I said, this big freshman class, I did that just the other day. Um, you know, they don't know their ways around the building. I'm, Hi, I'm Chad. You know, I'm, you know, I'm from Fox here. And where are you trying to go? Oh, I know where that is. Here, follow me. I'll, I'll take you on to H125, you know, which is a room in the cat. That sort of thing. So that's transactional. But then they remember you. I would much rather engage that way than at a, at a party with canapes and, and wine and, and all the, those types of things. Whatever works for people, that's, that, that's fine. But I think that, that I would rather be closer there than kind of do it in that, that, that social scene of, that, that Conconi talked about some years ago. You are like the mayor of Capitol Hill. I don't know about that. I've I've been there a while, but uh, but it's important to know that you know there's a line in the Music Man. You got to know the territory. Well, you have to know the territory, and that's where. You know, let's go back. You asked a few minutes ago about the piece on the contingent election. I didn't know yesterday I was going to get asked a question about a contingent election. I knew in 2016 that that could be an issue, and I knew if, because if that's in my wheelhouse, I better know about it. In fact, there was there was something that had come up about a, a procedural issue in the Senate a few weeks ago, and I knew it was going to come up, and I made sure that I went and talked to the appropriate people and even some, some people who weren't there anymore to make sure I was thinking about it. Right? And frankly, Steve, that's I'd like to think that's good journalism. I didn't even rely on what I think is right or what I know with my own knowledge. I, I went to these folks' sources and said, here's what I, what I believe is the case. Am I correct? Now, it turns out I was, but that's what good journalism, you go then check with the experts, which is what I did. Another example was the question a couple of weeks ago about, well, can the president just show up and speak for State of the Union? Well, Congress always pays, passes, both the House and Senate, a concurrent resolution, which authorizes him to come into the chamber, authorizes the House and Senate to meet in the same place for State of the Union. I had, I've seen these passed on the floor, usually by voice vote on the House. I've never read one. I never read one till last week. Never had to read one. I called up a bunch of them. I read through them to make sure I understood it. And then someone said, well, can't the president, because it says in Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution, that's where the term State of the Union is derived. From time to time, the president shall provide information to the Congress on the State of the Union. Also there, it talks about him uh, can recall the Congress, convene either or both houses if necessary. Well, again, I went and talked to people because I said this is important. This is why it's important just not to know the members, but get to understand the staff and the police officers and the custodian. There's some everybody up there has part of the story. And so I said, all right, the last time that this happened was 47 and 48. Harry Truman did this. But the House and Senate have to be in a very special parliamentary stature. They have to be out like in a germ, like for the August recess or Christmas or something, that wasn't that wasn't going to be the parliamentary statute. So the president couldn't call them back. And even if he did, he still doesn't have the right to speak. But what I did is I went and got the House rule book, House Rule 4. There's a list of about 25 people. And I read it on the air. In fact, there's a picture of me holding up the House rule book, Jefferson's Manual, pointing out all the different people who can come to who have floor privileges in the House chamber. One of them is the president of the United States doesn't say he can speak, though. He can go into the House chamber. He cannot speak, though, unless they pass that concurrent resolution. So that's why it's important to have just not sources with legislative people, and member, but know all the other people as well. Let me conclude, that's fascinating, by the way, with a policy question. If we were to sit here a year from now looking at this off-year election, one year of the 116th Congress, legislatively, 
what do you think they will accomplish? There are questions about if this conference committee sets the table for that. In other words, that it's nothing but a, a as one reporter put it the other day to Stanley Hoyer, a black hole. Uh, that, that if they don't accomplish this, it really sets a bad tone for everything. Because you do have a divided Congress, which we don't always have. You know, House is Democratic, Senate's Republican. That said, if they're able to get together on something, that's possible. When Pelosi called the president, uh, when they were working out the details of speaking, uh, arranging State of the Union, um, she said that she had talked to him about other things that they could work together on. The ubiquitous infrastructure bill, which we've heard about for years in Washington. You know, there's this running joke in Washington, Steve, that it's infrastructure week this week, you know, <laughs> and that it never happens. We'll see what the president says at State of the Union with infrastructure. Uh, I do think that there's an opportunity for that. Here's the other thing that I have seen and a lot of folks who've been here and observed it, that when you get through a crisis, that it creates opportunity to do something big. In other words, we've been through this big 35-day shutdown crisis, and soberheads then start to prevail and say, okay, let's let's get something done. Now, now oftentimes that entails an event, something to, that, that, that compels action. But, you know, we saw that in 2011, now a lot of people don't like this, but they, you know, they had the, the imposed sequestration, uh, which is this mandatory set of cuts, which they're still dealing with. But they worked something out because they had this crisis with the debt ceiling in 2011. When you come off the shutdowns of 95, 96 with President Clinton and Newt Gingrich, guess what? They worked out a major, with a capital M, spending deal, which really changed the trajectory for a long time in Washington, really till 9-11, and, and welfare reform. Major deal between Clinton and Gingrich. Now, a lot of people might argue that Bill Clinton came out looking better from that, and Newt Gingrich was never the same politically after those shutdowns, but it produced something. And so there is the school of thought that if you can set the table with some success with this conference committee and get something through, maybe there's something there. And here's the other point that I'll leave you with on that score. You have all these new freshmen, mostly Democrats, who they're a different breed. They've not been part of Washington. They haven't really been, some of them have never been in office before. Uh, a lot from the military. Uh, yes, also from the military. And that brings a different viewpoint to this as well. And in fact, there was one member I was talking about, he was very upset that Congress wasn't in session. He said, in the military, what you do is you get everybody together and, you know, you, you say, we do have this crisis. We're not going to, we got to figure this out. Okay. And that's a very interesting viewpoint. So that might be a dynamic that hasn't fully been explored yet. Because this is not like other freshman classes. And the demand from both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans in that freshman class, might say we have to do something and do something different. And very briefly, the Chad Program biography. You mentioned Miami University of Ohio. Where did you grow up and how did you first come to Washington? Jacksonburg, Ohio, which is east of Oxford, smallest incorporated village in the state, population of 52. It has both political and journalistic background, neither of which I have a darn thing to deal with. Across the road is the home of James M. Cox, where he grew up, was the uh, two-term congressman, governor of Ohio, Democratic nominee for president in 1920, with FDR, lost to Warren Harding, both candidates that year for, were from Ohio. He was a newspaper man, and you've heard of Cox newspapers, broadcasting, Cox Cable, Cox Enterprises. That's him. So that's, that's, that's Cox and Jacksonburg. Jacksonburg, Ohio. I um, had finished my master's degree at Miami. I'd worked in 
public radio at the public radio station there in college for uh, as part of my I didn't teach a class I worked at the radio so that was my that was my deal to be a reporter and anchor their afternoon news program before all things considered on NPR and I had done this for six seven years starting when I was in high school different radio and TV jobs and I was like well I, I was always interested in politics and there was this guy who I covered this this uh, this uh, crazy congressional race in 1990. Uh, and I always wonder what happened to this guy, this guy with this unpronounceable name, but it, it, it was really kind of my first introduction to, to politics, a guy named Boehner, who was the local congressman, and won in a crazy upset. There was a major political scandal, which has got him in, and so that helped kind of facilitate the bug. And and then there was this guy who lived down the street from me at Miami. We weren't friends, but this guy lived down the street from Wisconsin, a guy named Ryan, uh, lived in the Delt House, uh, Janesville, Wisconsin. I always wonder what happened to him, too. Uh, true stories. But did you know him? I knew who he was. We were n- we were not friends, never in classes together. But there was a dining hall on campus where I took a lot of my meals, and I know that a lot of the fraternity brothers from that patern- fraternity house would eat as well. And I just you know you you get to know you see people around. I don't know that I ever had a conversation. I would see him around. And we should I, say Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, Republican, former speaker, precisely. Um, and so that was kind of it. I so I determined at the end of that. Finishing my master's there, I said, well, I'm, I'm interested in politics and, you know, well, you know, you, you want to go where the action is. <laughs> and so I said, well, I should go to Washington. So I drove out here with no job. And a few weeks later, I was working at C-SPAN. Chad Pergam, a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for coming back and stopping by. Thank you, Steve, for having me. It was fun. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app online anytime at cspan.org. We thank you for listening. Thank you.